I'm your inner dream monologue, and you're fast asleep, so I'll be quick. Great job using the Colgate Optic White Overnight Teeth Whitening Pen before bed. When used as directed, it gives you a visibly whiter smile in just seven days. So while I fly and talk to animals, you're removing teeth stains with ease. Sweet dreams. And when you wake up, keep on living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Biography. I'm Oline Eaton, and today I'm going to be talking with Sarah Churchwell about her new book entitled Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us for New Books and Biography. I wonder if you would just kick things off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Um, sure. Uh, my name is Sarah Churchwell. I'm a professor of American literature at the University of East Anglia, which is in Norwich, England. Um, but as uh, you might be able to hear from my accent. I was not raised in England. I'm actually from Chicago, which is where all of my family is. And I was educated on the east coast of New York, first at Vassar as an undergrad. And then I did my, I made my PhD at Princeton before moving to England about 15 years ago. So what drew you to Fitzgerald in general and The Great Gatsby in particular as a subject for this book? Um, well, I'd always wanted to write about Fitzgerald and, um, and Gatsby. I'd always hoped to find uh, a way to to do something that would feel in, inventive and and original, at least to me, um, and uh, so that was always something that was in the back of my mind. And and it's a book that I love, as so many people do. And I uh, am lucky enough to be able to teach it in my literature classes. So I teach it every year, and part of that means, of course, that one has to keep up with the scholarship and and read around it. And and it's a great luxury that uh, that professors have, you know, that it's our job to learn more about the writers that we love. And so I was, um, I was just as I do, kind of, you know, dabbling and reading around and looking at some stuff, and and um, and various ideas started to to come together for me as I was thinking about it. And um, and it really was, uh, it was sort of serendipitous, as I say. There was this, um, there, I had always had this sense that I would write about him someday, and and then through various uh, kind of cross currents, I started to feel like maybe the time was right, and and the idea was at hand. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should clarify that this isn't a biography in the conventional sense, and in the preface you write that mm. it's more of a found history of what was in the air, as Fitzgerald wrote. Mm. So how did you arrive at the decision that this was the best way to tell this story, rather than just a straight-up literary analysis of Gatsby or a standard biography of Fitzgerald during the period? Mm. Well, I arrived at that decision, at, at the decision of the form of the book, um, which in a sense is kind of modeled on the scrapbook that Fitzgerald kept. Um, but that that arrived. The, the form arrived fairly late, although I knew by then what the story was that I wanted to tell. Um, I've, I always knew that I didn't I didn't want to write a conventional literary biography, and I didn't want to write a conventional literary analysis. Not just about him, although that's true, but partly because that's not something that, at least at this stage in my career. I'm particularly drawn to mm-hmm. myself. My first book was about Marilyn Monroe and was a meta-biography, meta a meta-textual analysis of uh, comparing the different biographies of Marilyn. And I really enjoyed doing something that felt 
to me at least a little bit a little bit fresher and, and a little bit like it wasn't just following a generic formula. And I like the I like the the experiment and the the it's almost to me it's almost like a puzzle of trying to find the right form to tell a particular critical factual story. So in a sense, I always knew I didn't want it to be conventional, but the question of what it would become, I didn't really know. Um, but the, the decision to, to try to write about what was in the air, um, which is obviously, you know, a, a metaphor in one sense, but it's actually Fitzgerald's own metaphor. So in My Lost City, he writes about um, when he and, he and Zelda left New York at the beginning of 1924 and sailed for France, which, of course, is where he would write The Great Gatsby. And the way he describes that decision is he says, and, you know, he's writing this essay in the next back, but the way he describes that decision to leave is he says, I would take the, the familiar Long Island, oh, sorry, I would take the Long Island atmosphere that I had familiarly breathed and materialize it beneath unfamiliar skies. And as I, as I started to, to realize what I wanted the project to be, um, that became the image that I had with me all along, was that I was going to try in, in my own way to materialize that Long Island atmosphere if I could. And of course, it wouldn't be the atmosphere that Fitzgerald had familiarly breathed, by definition, um, it's almost 100 years later. But, uh, but my feeling was that we, the Great Gatsby that has come down to so many of us, myself included, in our high school classes, our university classes, and then I realized that I was even perpetuating it as a professor without realizing it, there are all these myths that have come down to us about The Great Gatsby. I think we have a really mythical version of this novel, but it's not actually a lot of it. it, it well, it is on the page, but it's only part of what's on the page. And it's as if we have this occluded vision of the novel and so what I wanted to try to do was to see whether I could get back, whether I could strip away some of those myths and, and get back to some first principles about what that Long Island atmosphere was actually like. And so I ended up creating a book that is a blend of, um, of biography, but also of social history and literary history, and then literary criticism as well. And so what I tried to do was to weave together three strands of narrative. First is the story of Scott and Zelda as they return to New York in the autumn of 1922, which of course is the year in which he would eventually set the Great Gatsby. And they, they New York and they start the parties that inspire, that at least helped inspire the novel. And that's a very familiar idea to um, scholars and, and readers of biographies about Scott and Zelda, but I wanted to try to reconstruct that autumn as closely as I could. You know, if I could to go day by day, what were they wearing? What were they drinking? Who were they seeing? What were the parties actually like? Who was actually at them? Not just a list like you'll get in a lot of biographies of just, oh, here are these people, but who were these people and what was it like to be there? And to try, if I could, to create a feeling that was almost novelistic, but without ever crossing the line into fiction, making sure that everything that I put on the page was um, documentable and, um, and and as factual as, you know. I mean, those of us who are academics are a little bit skeptical of the notion that, that facts are particularly trustworthy, right. but certainly that I was not overtly straying into a fictional recreation, but basing anything that I said on documentable or verifiable sources. So that's one strand, is the story of Scott and Zelda as they make their way back to New York and rent their house in Great Neck and start the party, uh, be part of the model for Gatsby. 
The second part of the story is the story of Gatsby itself, which I try to kind of grade through the story so that there's a, a hopefully a sense of how the fiction emerges from the facts around it. Mm-hmm. And then the third story is a specific story that I found, which was part of what inspired this particular book, which is that there was a, a real-life murder mystery that happened at the end of 1922, just as Scott and Zelda were coming back to New York, that became one of the most notorious cases of the 1920s and I think is a very underestimated influence on the novel itself. Most of the factual um, uh, historical sources that have gone into the novel have, of course, been completely trawled over and, you know, shaken up and, and you know, shook out to see what we can, what we can learn about the novel. But um, in this case, although there's been a little bit of scholarship about it, there's not very much and it's not very well known. And... The further I delved into the story, um, it's called the Hall, the Hall Mills murder case is how it became known. And I became more and more convinced that it had these uncanny parallels with The Great Gatsby and that whether or not it is a, whether or not Fitzgerald was sitting down consciously and thinking about this murder mystery when he wrote The Great Gatsby, in fact, I think, you know, most likely he probably wasn't. Um, but and, and there's certainly no evidence that he that he was thinking about it consciously at all. But that a lot of the certainly some of its details made its way into the novel without question. Um, and it, the woman in the case, uh, Eleanor Mills, who is one of the victims, uh, seems to be a very very have to very strong correlations with Myrtle Wilson, um, with Tom Buchanan's mistress. But the but even if. Even if the, the, there isn't a one-to-one correspondence between the case and the novel, that doesn't really um, that doesn't really matter to me because it seemed to me that what the what the mystery does is it is it helps to to throw a new light on and and to throw into relief exactly those aspects of the novel that I said a moment ago. I feel like we no longer see. So for me, it was a story that if you, when juxtaposed with The Great Gatsby, helps us to see the darkness of Gatsby, what a dark novel it is, because it's enough, littered with symbols of light, Mm -hmm. and people really like to focus on the light, and that's one of the images that we have of the novel, is this glitter and the green light, of course. But it's actually also a novel about darkness, from the beginning to the end, and that darkness is both literal and figurative. And it seems to me that the story of Hall Mills helps us feel that darkness again. It helps us feel that chaos. It helps us feel also why it was so difficult for Fitzgerald's um, first readers to see what it was that he had created because they were all blinded by the tabloid sensationalist parallels between his novel and the kinds of murder cases that the Hallmose story represents. Not necessarily that murder mystery per se, but that for me it's a kind of emblematic um, way of, of, of thinking about the relationship between real-life events around them in the 1920s and the novel that Fitzgerald wrote. So what sources were most helpful as you were writing? Oh, uh, well, the most important thing, besides obviously Fitzgerald's own letters and books, um, which, you know, were always going to be uh, key, um, the two most important sources were the um, archives at Princeton, Mm -hmm. which is where most of Fitzgerald's papers are held. And I I particularly where his scrapbooks are held, which let me reconstruct um, what kinds of, of things he was likely to have been uh, reading and seeing at the time, at least partly, 
um, of course, you didn't keep any kind of comprehensive record of, you know, books I read today. Uh, you didn't have anything like that systematic life. Um, so there, there was never going to be anything like that. But they all read the newspapers every day. And so, and, and often more than one paper, most of them did, because this is in the years before even radio was providing news. So the papers are really their only source of news still. So if you wanted to be informed, that was what you did. It was what every literate American did, was read several papers a day. And so he, what he did was he, he created these scrapbooks that are mostly of, of clippings of mentions of him and his books and of uh, his escapades with Zelda. But what it also does is, is show which papers he was reading and, and what he was kind of following. So there, there were those which are very important and um, other kinds of, um, other kinds of, of letters and, and unpublished correspondence that are at the Princeton Archives that help me date various things about that autumn because, because I'm trying to focus in so closely on that autumn. Other biographers who are taking a wider sweep across Fitzgerald's life have, of course, you know, not, not, cared to focus too deeply on, you know, what was happening on November 18th. But if I could find a letter on November 18th, then it told me something that they were doing. So those were very important. And then uh, the, the parallel to that was to actually go back and reread the newspapers of the day myself, the New York papers for the most part, because that's what they would have been reading and indeed what they were reading. So uh, I just trawled through the New York Times, the New York Tribune, which was a very important paper and the New York World, um, which was the most popular paper of the day. So those three papers were my main sources. And, and going back through those, I learned a lot about what their world was like, um, much more than I had expected to, actually. And, and a lot of my own myths about the novel and my received wisdoms were challenged. One of the first ones that I encountered when I started reading newspapers from 1922, and I was, it was right at the beginning of the project, and I thought, oh, I should just read some newspapers. And, and, I, and I, was, it was, I, I was knew I was going to retrace this mystery, and so I thought, well, I should see what, how the papers are reporting it. And I, and, but I was still kind of feeling my way into what shape the project would take. And, and, I, and I started reading these papers, and one of the first things that startled me was, that, of course, it's before the days of, of many photographs in the newspapers because photographs were still too expensive to reproduce. Mm -hmm. So there are some, but they're grainy, and they're only in the, in the Rotogravure pages, in the, in the kind of celebrity fold-out pages. And most of the illustrations in the paper were still pen and ink drawings. And, and what I found, they're just flipping through old, you know, archives of the New York Times, and that there are all of these pictures of women in ankle-length dresses. And I thought, well, that, this was about five years ago when I started the project, and I thought, well, hang on, that's not right. Everybody knows. It's Gatsby. Everybody knows that the women are in knee-length dresses. Um, and that was completely the picture I'd had in my head, and, and I think it's the picture that most people have in their head, mm -hmm. and it turns out it's completely wrong. They were actually ankle length in 1922. They had been short. In, so in 1920, when women got the vote and prohibition began, it, it is true that skirts flew up toward the knee, but it only lasted for about six months, uh, less than a year, and then they dropped back down again. And from 1922 and all the way through 1922, uh, journalists and, and fashion editors and, you know, and people on the street were commenting on how surprising it was that, that skirts had, had lengthened so quickly and so dramatically. And suddenly they were back to ankle length. And they stayed that, that length through 1923 and into 1924 when Fitzgerald started writing Gatsby. So at the time at which he wrote The Great Gatsby, women had only had very short skirts and only very daring women had had very short skirts for a very short space of time five years earlier. 
and for the most part, skirts were calf length or longer, between calf and ankle length, what the British call midi. Um, and that's basically kind of where they were. And that came as a huge surprise to me, and that was something that I found just by flipping through the papers. And then I started to realize that the papers were going to teach me a lot if I started to pay attention. So that was when I started to really look for the, when I when I thought about what are my images of the novel, I started to really look for um, for for facts and information and to help create a context that might reframe the novel. So to to try to figure out how prohibition actually worked. Mm-hmm. To try and and of course I was also reading histories of prohibition and histories of the 1920s, but those were written at a remove. And and so I really wanted to go back to the papers and see what they were actually saying. What were they talking about? Um, the the papers and and the magazines, but. That's been done a little bit before um, in terms of Gatsby, but more in terms of Fitzgerald's intellectual context, his intellectual heritage. So things like what was he reading in the New Republic or, you know, what was that, what kind of ideas were Edmund Wilson and George Santayana passing on to, to Fitzgerald? And I, obviously that intellectual heritage is important, but I was more interested in the social and cultural context. What did day-to-day life feel like? Um, and, and that's what the, what the papers were incredibly important, were, were, were an incredibly important resource for me in reconstructing. Mm-hmm. Um, this kind of ties into that, because I now that the opinions of a lot of our listeners are probably going to be influenced by the recent film, um, can mm-hmm. you kind of set the stage for what New York was really like in the 1920s? I think that the passage I'm remembering, you talk about how it's a lot darker than we might imagine. Yeah, just because yeah. the lighting was well, of a different style. Yeah, there's several. Yeah, there's several aspects to that. I mean, the Lerman the Lerman film gives us an interest gives an interesting counterpoint to what I'm trying to do because what I would say that he did in that film is very successfully render exactly that mythical version of Gatsby that I'm talking about. Right. So if you want a visualization of that received wisdom about the novel, that's a pretty good one actually, for, for at least for what it looks like and feels like, not for its meaning, but. Um, but for the kind of feel of it. But in fact, yeah, he gets, a, I, he, I think deliberately, he said he, he meticulously researched it. So all I conclude is that, I can conclude is that he meticulously researched it and then decided that he didn't like what his research had turned up and decided <laughs> to, to disregard it because, because it's not there. So right. the skirts are short. Um, they shouldn't be short. Daisy's in a strapless dress. No women wore strapless dresses in the 1920s. They didn't, I mean, they just, they just didn't. Um, I've never seen a single image of any strapless dress from the, from, from the early 1920s. Um, the, um, so that's a, that's a simple one. They do the Charleston, of course, but the Charleston actually came out after 1925. But yeah, I mean, when I first saw the, um, even the previews of the film made it clear, I actually just started laughing <laughs> because the vision of New York that he gives is a vision of New York in 2013. I mean, the skyscrapers are 200 stories high and they're lit from floor to ceiling. Well, in New York, they didn't have full electricity yet. Some buildings were, they had, they had electric neon signs, but first of all, they considered the skyscraper to be about 20 stories high. So we're talking about much, much shorter buildings. And so things like, for people who know New York, things like the old Scribner's building, which of course was Scott Fitzgerald's publisher, which is now a Sephora, it sells makeup, um, on the corner of 48th and 5th Avenue. And that building, I would guess, is, is, maybe 10 stories high, I want to say. Um, I might be wrong, but I mean, if you stand on the corner and look at it, it doesn't seem to us very high. And that was a relatively new building and it was considered, you know, a fairly high, you know, impressive big building. Um, so Lerman's vision of New York is of this, is of this garishly lit, 
like, like they just had you know, nonstop electricity. But I found an article in the New York Times in 1920, uh, sorry, I, I'm mixing two things up, sorry. In, in 1922, in that autumn, in fact, there was an article announcing that the government had just um, had, had just declared plans to, to electrify the nation, which I thought was a great little, you know, almost kind of a little pun. Yeah, exactly. They're going to electrify the nation by electrifying it. So, so in other words, I mean, yes, parts of New York certainly were. It's not the case that they were living by flickering gas lamp and candlelight, but just picture a world in transition where there's some electricity, but not everybody has it and not everybody can afford it and not everybody has floor to ceiling. And certainly the you know, office buildings weren't left lit up all night long and they weren't that tall to begin with. And so all of that was just as I say, was just a very kind of twenty thirteen image. The speed at which they're driving um, it was. It was. You, you were considered to be going very, very fast if you were going 50 or 60 miles an hour, um, and most of the speed limits were 20 to 30. So when Gatsby and Nick seemed to be going to 100 miles an hour, I was like, okay, well maybe this is supposed to be a metaphor, but um, or you know, it's just relative, right? So, but then um, when they get out of uh, when they get out into New York City for the first time, we see all of these 20-style yellow cabs in the film. And one of the things I found that I really liked, that really interested me, was that it is true that there were yellow cabs in New York in 1922. In fact, they had just incorporated in 1922, so they were a brand new thing, the yellow cabs. But cabs came in all colors. So there were actually blue taxis that had hoods, and couples who wanted to go out on a surreptitious date would would, hang, would hold out for a blue taxi. Um, there were black and white taxis. There were silver taxis that had swastikas on them, which is something that I go into because, of course, this is before Hitler has turned the swastika into a universal symbol of, of Nazism, mm -hmm. and it's a much more generic good luck symbol from the turn of the century, which, of course, is why Hitler himself adopted it. So you, the, for him, for Lerman to make the decision to just have the yellow cabs was, again, a way of making it feel like the New York of today. But the yellow cab company doesn't get a monopoly on uh, cabs in New York until the 50s or, or even maybe the 60s. I can't quite remember, but it was I checked, and it was decades later. Mm -hmm. So the so it was all of those kinds of details. So so the world that, that I now picture when I picture the New York of, of that time is a world of, of um, I described it in the book that taxis came in Harlequin colors because they actually really liked the Harlequin at that point. And that's sort of what I see is this kind of motley, uh, you know, gallimaufry of, of colors of these um, of these cabs and and the women are in are in longer dresses. The, the men are, you know, they're, they're much neater than, than, you know, they're still quite, um, there's still an emphasis on, you know, three-piece suits and wearing hats and being well presented. And again, I think that Lerman has them, you know, he depicts them quite informally. Um, and the, probably the most important thing socially that he changes is his depiction of interracial harmony. Um, which, to say the least, is, uh, is again, an anachronism and an exaggeration. Um, when they go down into the speakeasy, um, when he goes, when Nick comes with Tom and they go down into the basement speakeasy where they encounter Wolfsheim and Tom Buchanan, uh, Lerman depicts it as a mixed-race speakeasy. First of all, there were no mixed-race speakeasies in Midtown. Um, there were some in Harlem in 1922, but for the most part, they weren't really mixed race. Even the Cotton Club, for example, which opened, nobody can find out, well, if I wasn't able to find out exactly when it opened, I kept seeing different dates, but it looks as if it opened sometime in 1923. Um, but it's right, certainly right in the moment. Um, the Cotton Club opened, uh, owned by a gangster, 
and it um, it had, as we all know, it had all it had black musicians and it had black staff and black entertainers, but it did not have black customers. It was closed to black customers. It was only for white customers, and I think that people have have you know we've lost sight of that. It was segregated, even in Harlem. And in Midtown, it was definitely segregated. One of the things that I found uh, in researching the book was a story that I thought was really quite amazing, but but very revealing. Um, in the newspapers was that, that that same autumn in October of 1922, a young black man in Hell's Kitchen, which of course is um, is Midtown, well, it's west of Midtown, it's Eighth and Ninth Avenue at, at around in, in, in basically the 40s, so a few blocks west of Times Square. And at, in, in that space, in, in the autumn of in that neighborhood, in the autumn of 1922, a young black man was almost lynched by a crowd that the papers at least reported as having been 2,000 people tried to lynch him for uh, kiss, allegedly kissing a white woman. And they had a rope, and they were surrounding him, and he'd been beaten senseless, and the police had to rescue him. Now, luckily, because it was New York, he was rescued. But that gives, I think, a much better sense of the climate of the times. And it's why it matters that Tom Buchanan is a white supremacist and that he expresses those ideas at the beginning of the novel. So for Lerman to put Tom Buchanan in a mixed-race speakeasy, in Midtown, and everybody's just kind of happily watching interracial couples make out on the dance floor. Uh, you know that, that it, that's a real whitewashing of history, and I use that metaphor advisedly. Um, it, it was considerably uglier than that, and it doesn't do. I don't think it does us any favors in in telling stories about our past. That's my personal feeling about this. Mm-hmm. Um, I say the same thing about people talking about, you know, there was that story last year about the edition of Huck Finn that changed the word nigger to the word slave because the N-word was seen as, you know, so difficult and so inflammatory. Mm-hmm. And and from my point of view, that you know, it, it, we, it, we, can't, we can't eradicate the history of racism mm-hmm. in order to eradicate the problem of racism. You, 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 you know, you can't make it go away. Um, and, and if nothing else, you, you, it, it, for me, part of the problem then is that people wonder what all the fuss was about. If, if all of our popular representations make it look as if everything was always, you know, affable and chummy and everybody got mm-hmm. along fine, then you might wonder why on earth there was all this trouble about it. Um, because in fact, it was, it was, you know, totally violent and virulent and, um, and obviously, you know, talking about this with the, the decision that was made yesterday, um, mm-hmm. It's hard, you know. It's hard not to. It's hard not to think about those kinds of stories and and to see this as part of a. And, and this is something I really tried to do in the book, is is to is to also situate the Great Gatsby and indeed the story of the 1920s in a longer story about uh, American history and about the meanings of American society, which of course is one of the great themes of the Great Gatsby itself. And so I felt that it needed to be in a different way. One of the themes of my book is, you know, what it, what is this America that, that Fitzgerald discovered and that we've inherited? Mm-hmm. This is going to seem like a superficial question after that. Um, but you've also <laughs> some really fascinating passages on the state of driving in the 1920s, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss that a bit? Mm-hmm. Like the, just even the way the traffic signals were done, I thought was just so fascinating. <laughs> you would never think of that. You think of the, we look back on the 20s, I think, and see them as quite modern. Um, yeah, and but their idea of modernity was such a different thing. <laughs> exactly, mm-hmm. and that's the thing is that it is modern, but it's. I think the best way to think about it is that it's a it's a transitional time. Right. So 
it, it hasn't fully got, it's getting modern, but it isn't all there yet. And so it's kind of, you know, half Edwardian and half modern, and it's trying to figure things out. And it's the society that's literally in flux and is, um, and is, and is quite incoherent at times as it tries to figure out what it's going to be about and how it's going to work and, and how to embrace all of these technological changes. And in that sense, I see it as very much in parallel to our time. It's, they were facing a very similar revolution to the way that the digital revolution is transforming our lives and the way that all of us are trying to make sense of that and to predict how it's going to transform everything. Well, in retrospect, it will be clear to us as a society how that all worked. But right now, as we're lost in it, we, we can only kind of grow for a sense of, of how to change the rules, of, of how to create structures that will deal with the technologies that we've created. And they were in a fairly similar position with the sudden onset of cars, radio, uh, and, um, and, and film, well, mass media generally, let's call it that. So basically with cars and mass media, you have a massive transformation of society in a similar period of time uh, to the one that we're dealing with, you know, in about a decade, all the rules seem to change. And one of the things that they needed to come to terms with was the fact that everybody could suddenly afford cars. And throughout the 1920s, every American home is, is uh, you know, that, that is certainly every middle class home is, is getting a car and, and that's transforming the country in all kinds of ways. And so one of the things that I found as I was researching it was, of course, that, that raises the question of that famous green light. And does the green light mean go in 1922? Or is that, in fact, an anachronistic meaning that we might have assigned to it because of our assumption that green has always meant go? But, of course, right at the moment when a, car, when a, sorry, when a society is getting cars, that's exactly that, that's why it seemed to me that this was an interesting question to ask because it might not have meant that yet. And maybe we were only retroactively assigning that meaning. It turns out it was much more interesting than I thought. Um, it turns out that uh, green had meant go since the 19th century because of railroad signals. So the railroads had long used red, yellow, and green in exactly the ways that we do. Red for stop, yellow for caution, green for go. That was all very straightforward. But when they started creating traffic signals and they put the first traffic signals uh, they built the first traffic signals in New York City that very autumn, in the autumn of 1922 on Fifth Avenue. They built these giant 30-foot traffic signals that nobody, I think, remembers about. Um, certainly, I'd never heard about them. And they put a traffic policeman in the top, and he would pull levers to, uh, to kind of open a, a yellow, a green, or a red window. But the problem was that they didn't use the colors consistently. And so green sometimes seemed to mean go, and sometimes it means, seemed to mean stop. And and sometimes they thought that it actually meant that you could go from east to west, but not from north to south. And nobody was really sure what it meant. And, and when I read this letter, to the New York Times complained, complaining that it seemed to mean that you could move from east to west, but not from west to east or something like that. And I just started laughing because it, it's so apropos to Gatsby, because, of course, Gatsby is the character who moves from west to east following that green light, mm -hmm. thinking that it means go. And when he gets there, he finds out that it was that it was a chimera, that it led him on, that he wasn't allowed to move in that direction. Now, again, you know, is Fitzgerald deliberately sitting down and thinking in some kind of literal flat-footed way? Oh, I know. I'll use the green light because in New York, it sometimes means east to west. Of course not. That's just but it seemed to me that it was really interesting that all, and that's what I meant at the beginning about saying that I was trying to recreate the air, that that's what's in the air, that all of those kinds of ideas are swirling around and that the, that the very question of what a green light means is something that the society at the time is asking. Mm -hmm.
I think in many respects, the book to me was kind of an excavation of a writer's process, which I found so fascinating because it kind of just took all of them in looking at the things of the air. You could just pull them out and see what he took and what he, or even just how it might've subtly influenced, if not overtly. I thought that was really, really an amazing thing. You don't get that done with books very often. Oh, thank you. That's really what I was trying to do. So I'm really glad that came yeah, across. No, it's fascinating. Um, I think also one of the other things I want to talk about is the invention of language. Um, Mm. Because you have several kind of glossaries. I actually just recently reread The Great Gatsby and had a version from, that was a British publication from 1947 that had a breakdown of all of the American words in the back of the book. And so I thought it was really, (laughs) it was like explaining that a car was a a section of a rail car and stuff like that. It was just really interesting. (laughs) But yours um, looked at slang and also just different words that were being created at the time. Can you talk a bit, how did you go about tracing the evolution or the creation of those words in culture? Well, what happened was that I started out by just wanting, because I wanted to to be as authentic as I could be, I wanted to check um, whether certain words that I wanted, that I might want to use in my narration, um, whether they were anachronistic or not. So what I wanted to do was to try to create, my original thought was that I was going to just try to create a flavor by using as much as was, um, you know, feasible without being arch or, or parodic or, you know, a pastiche or anything. But to just try to, you know, to, to say, um, so that if I were writing a very, you know, turn it around, if I were, it, you know, when Jay McInerney writes a book about the 1980s, he's going to have, you know, his narrator can say that something is cool. And then I was sort of thinking, okay, well, these guys want to be cool, but of course I can't use that word because it's anachronistic, it's from the 50s or something, I thought, you know, vaguely. And so, and so then I thought, well, actually, I should check. And I should also check, because, and also then I saw as I was, this was all sort of happening simultaneously, and then I was reading, rereading Fitzgerald's earlier novel, and in this side of paradise, he uses the word hip. Um, he actually says we're hip on Freud and all that. And so I found myself, that, that those were actually the, the beginning of it for me, was hips and cool. And I found myself sort of, idly thinking. I was actually on a train and, and I was kind of idly thinking about this and I, and I thought, you know what, I should just check. I should just check when these words come in so that I know what I can use. Mm-hmm. And the wonderful electronic OED um, now lets you do all kinds of cross searches and reverse searches. And so you can search by date. You can search by the author who first introduced a word into the language. And so I just checked cool and to my immense surprise, Cool was first coined in the slang meaning that we know primarily um, in 1918. So it was a completely legitimate word to use in that context. And it turned out that hip was as well. And then I started checking some other ones. And then I thought, you know what, I just need to check all the words that came into the language in 1922. And because the OED made that so simple, I just plugged it in and started reading through them. And then my eyes started to pop out of my head because I couldn't believe some of the words that were coined in 1922 and how many of them seemed to be, um, seemed to be very, uh, um, what's the word I want? That not just, I mean, apropos to weak, that they were uh, so, they seemed to me so much, a, 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 I'm stumbling here because it's, so, it's actually hard to, they seem to be so much the language of our time, right. to put it simply, and they weren't. So in, in 1922, for example, um, the, the following words were uh, used for the first time. I've actually just pulled up the list. Um, brand name, Hollywood, is first used to mean the movie industry. Robot, sparkly, schlep, 
So actually, one of the things that was interesting to me was that Yiddish is starting to make its way into mainstream English. Mm-hmm. Dimwit, No Brow, Oops, Rebrand, Mass Market, Broadcasting and Broadcaster, Post Freud. Post-Freudian um, to proposition, cold turkey, quantum mechanics, vacuum, entrepreneurial. And E.E. Um, e. Cummings, the poet, was the first to use the word party as a verb in 1922. And then that, in, in December that year, he writes a letter about having partied with the literary crowd in Paris. And that was interesting enough to me that I thought, okay, you know, I can't just limit it to 1922. I need to see what words are actually current. And so I, I spread my search. I decided to make it a, a five-year search between 1918 and 1923, just to keep it simple, and say, okay, let's just look at what the language is that's coming in at the beginning of the jazz age. And, you know, one of the other ones that I found is post-feminist, which we think of as such a modern term, was actually coined in 1919. Um, now, they use, they use it to mean something slightly different, but nonetheless, the word is coined at that point. Um, the, Fitzgerald is actually the first to use, to record anyway, the use of the word wicked as a term of approval. So, the, so I realized as I was reading to all of this, that's in the side of paradise in 1920, and so I realized as I was reading through all of this, that in fact, if you said, you know, we partied last night and it was wicked, instead of that being 21st century slang, that was actually 1920s slang. And that, to me, was amazing. Yeah. And so at that point, I decided that this wasn't just a question of using it for my own narration, but that I wanted to make that point of the book and actually part of the subject of the book, rather than something I implicitly just used to try to set a tone, but to actually make it much more explicit and say, this is, this is part of what I'm looking at, is the transformation of language and how that helped create our modern world, how it helped create modern America. Mm-hmm. And then I started to find other lists, which I thought were really lists of words. Well, I created, I didn't find that list, I created that list. But then I found some other lists that were already created. Um, Edmund Wilson, who was Fitzgerald's friend, and of course went on to become one of the most influential literary critics of the 20th century in America, um, he, in the late 1920s, compiled his own list, uh, he called it a lexicon of prohibition, of temporary slang terms for being drunk. And he, and he did it in degrees of, um, of, of drunkenness. So he starts with the lightest and goes, to the, goes down to the worst, and you sort of see yourself go through the, through the, the whole process of inebriation and hangover and then, you know, the, the, you know, the, the screaming memes and, you know, DTs and all of that kind of thing. Um, and then I found another list, which as an American living in London, which I thought was absolutely hysterical, which was, of course, one of the biggest books in America of 1922 was Sinclair Lewis's Babbitt, which was one of the biggest bestsellers of the year. In fact, it might have been the biggest bestseller. Uh, I'm suddenly not remembering rightly, but it's, it, it's either, you know, if it's not the first, it's right up there. And it was so popular that it was published in Britain, and um, but the British decided to include a glossary translating some of these for British readers, and I and I loved it because they got some of it wrong, and, so, and 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 actually completely wrong. So, for instance, they used the word uh, Weisenheimer. They define as a man of the world, which I thought was really funny. So, um, so there's some there's some sort of wonderful moments there about the about the slip created when you um, when it, when exactly language is undergoing these kinds of transformations, the way that it creates ambiguity and uncertainty and, and unintentional comedy. And all of that I just found, you know, I, I'm a word geek, so I found that just endlessly amusing and entertaining. And luckily for me, my editors didn't, and I was afraid they would say this isn't really about Gatsby, and so, you know, it has to get cut out. And, and I said, but, you know, it's so much about 
the moment. And that's really what this book has, it, the book became about more than just The Great Gatsby. It became about trying to recreate the world of 1922 and to see how Gatsby itself was part of that recreation, um, but not the only um, point of recreation. I usually wind down our interviews by asking what the author sees as the legacy of the biographical subject, but I think that's an enormous question here. Um, so I'd rather ask, how has what you found altered your understanding or deepened your appreciation of The Great Gatsby or Fitzgerald? Hmm. Um, for me, it, it has done both by, uh, by quite a bit. Um, I, it's something I, I am asked about um, by students and audiences a fair amount, which is um, the kind of dread question about whether, as a critic, when you if you examine a book too much, does it kill your pleasure in it? Um, and you know, and people say, oh, I don't want to study literature because I don't think I'll enjoy it anymore. Um, and and I always think that 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 suggests such a limited definition of pleasure. Mm-hmm. For me, the more I learn about something, the more fun I'm having. Um, that just seems to be the way I'm wired. Um, but But also, it it is such a joy to come to grips with something that you've always loved and to feel that on some level you understand it fully or at least as as fully as you can at that, you know, or more fully or, you know, something like that. And the image that I always think of in relationship to this is actually, of course, Fitzgerald's own in a letter that he wrote to his daughter, Scotty, near the end of his life. And he was telling her to read Keats because, of course, he greatly loved Keats. And he was saying that he supposed that he had read the Ode on a Grecian Urn a hundred times. And he said maybe only on the 10th or the 20th or something. I can't remember. Um, but, you know, only after many readings, he said, did I, did I catch the chime in it and start, to, and start to feel its exquisite inner mechanics? And that was how I felt about reading Gatsby, that on the hundredth time I started to catch the chime in it, that I started, you know, in writing this book, I started to try to have an understanding of its exquisite inner mechanics, and that's what I wanted to know. And that for me, I appreciate its beauty more the more I learn about it and the more I see in it. It is certainly a book that I found every time I returned to it, I saw something new. And that's a cliche, but it was absolutely my experience. And on the level of the sentence and on the level of the image, I can open that book and still be startled. You know, I think I know the damn thing verbatim, and and it's not that long. And I can open it up and be startled by an image that I just that, that just suddenly leaps out at you. It's just an extraordinary book that it goes on and on. And Fitzgerald himself, I have uh, and and Zelda, it, it deepened my appreciation of both of them. If anything, actually, it did more for me in terms of Zelda than anything, because I probably underestimated her. Uh, I wouldn't have like, I wouldn't have admitted it before him, but looking back on it, I would say that I did. Mm -hmm. And, um, and now I think that she's very, very interesting and she's very, um, she was very moving and very courageous. And so was he. And so much ink has been spilled about, you know, the mistakes that they made and, and the, their flaws and their failures. And, and those are all real, but you know, who doesn't have them? But, but not enough is said about their courage in facing their problems and and, and in trying to, to live an, not an exemplary life. They didn't care about that in one, and certainly not in the moral sense, but in but in trying to live a life that they believed in. And they actually had credos. They actually had, um, you know, they, they had, uh, um, 
a belief system sounds too rigid, but but there were there were principles by which they did in fact live their life. They just weren't necessarily the principles of people around them or of people today. Um, and they were and they were principles that in some ways were unprincipled, if you see what I mean. But they were they were nonetheless real, and I and I think they showed real courage and real um, beauty. They wanted life to be beautiful, and and something in me responds very deeply to that, and and always will. And so, the the more that I learned about them, the more I liked them, and the more I impressed by them I was, even knowing their failings, um, and and not wanting in any way to write a hagiography or or to or to not tell the truth about what I saw. Um, what I saw mostly, I found incredibly impressive and and touching. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today about careless people. Any idea who you'll be writing about next? I'm not sure, actually. I have uh, I have a meeting with uh, with agent and editor next week to try to pin it down. So um, there's a couple of ideas swirling around. So I guess watch the space. <laughs> Hopefully, it won't take me five years next time. That's my that's my real goal. <laughs> that's a good goal. <laughs> I've been talking today with Sarah Churchwell about her book, Careless People, Murder, Mayhem, and the Invention of the Great Gatsby. I'm Oline Eaton. This is New Books and Biography. Thanks for listening.